Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Our first speaker, come up and join me, Melanie, so people can see you, uh, is Melanie Mera. Melanie is one of the world's leading advocates on climate, sustainability and human rights. She's led campaigns for Oxfam, for Friends of the Earth. She's advised the UN Secretary-General and numerous companies. She's set up groundbreaking partnerships on behalf of the UK government with countries such as China and Brazil and India on climate change and sustainability. She's now CEO of GLOBE, the Global Legislators, Global Legislators Organization, and she's, appropriately enough, an ambassador for London Climate Action Week. So, Melanie, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Martin, for that introduction. And um, I'm happy to sit over here because I'm not going to give you a lecture. So you'll be happy to know. So I thought that we would just sit and I'd give you some thoughts uh, topically about um, London and climate action. So I'm just going to sit over here because I'm, I'm not giving a, a lecture. So um, I'm going to pretend you're all in the front row. <laughs> we all know each other. Um, and it's interesting being back here. Um, because I was actually sitting here, and there was a panel um, about 23 years ago um, when Penny Egan was the director in the days when the RSA didn't have chief executives. You know, at the very beginning, the RSA had secretaries who ran this place. And then, for a brief period, they had directors. And Penny, I think, was one of the very first women directors. And then after her came the first of the chief executives, Matthew Taylor, who used to work in the Blair government. Um, and why was I here? Because more than 20 years ago, the organization that I founded, which is called the Center for Social Markets, which was an NGO based in India and the UK, working largely with um, Asian business to promote corporate citizenship, we launched a campaign here called the British, Asian, British Asians Building Leadership for Climate Citizenship with Karan Bilimoria, I remember who was here, who's now Lord Bilimoria, the founder and president of Cobra Beer, and Usha Parashar. And I mention that because that's almost a generation ago. And now if you look around you, I mean, British Asians are everywhere, aren't they? Talk about the cabinet. I mean, there's been an absolute transformation. Um, but I'm going to speak about London. I'm a Londoner, I'm an Indian citizen, but I'm a Londoner and I'm an immigrant. And I have worked on climate change uh, for something close to 30 years. My very first UN conference was in Kyoto, the Kyoto Conference on Climate Change. Anyone know which COP that was? 93. It was COP3 in 1997. Yeah. And, um, and so it's been a long, long haul. And I've held many different positions in many different sectors at the UN, in the UK government. Uh, interestingly enough, as an Indian citizen, so there's a whole, you know, legacy of foreigners helping shape British policy on sustainability issues and other issues. Um, but uh, since Sadiq Khan became Mayor of London, I've been a Commissioner on Sustainable Development, working with Sadiq along with other commissioners. And I wanted to share with you uh, the journey that London's been on, on climate action, because London is really quite unique. And you may find me a bit too much of a London file, but there are reasons why I chose to make this country of all of the other places in the world that I've lived in, my home where I raised my children. Um, and that really has to do with London's absolute uniqueness. Um, where we're sitting now, some of you may not know this, of course, is underground. 
And just about a few meters to the left of here is Trafalgar Square. Yes, you all know Trafalgar Square. But did you know that when the Victorians were building Trafalgar Square, what do you think they found deep underground? Dinosaurs. Yes, they found the remains of mammoths and hyenas and hippos. And that was a time when, of course, Britain was part of Europe. We were part of the European mainland. And the first humans who came here almost a million years ago made that land crossing. And it was a really interesting listening to Lucy Fraser because that word Brexit didn't come up at all, did it? <laughs> yes, and I was listening out for it because I'm also the chair of the Institute for European Environment Policy, UK, which was founded in the UK almost 50 years ago. And because of Brexit, we had to move our headquarters to Brussels, but we are very much because there wouldn't be UK environment policy. We wouldn't be leaders on international climate change issues if we weren't part of the European Union, where we help shape this amazing um, architecture of the world's most progressive European Green Deal, um, legislation, policies, frameworks on the environment, on sustainability. But so back to London. Um, so London is interesting because it is, of course, it's a global city. Yes? Does anyone know how big London is in terms of population? Come on. 10 million? Close. It's in between 8 and 10. It's 9. Yes? So we've lost a few. So uh, according to estimates, there really hasn't been too much research into it, but we've lost about 600 to 700,000 people as a result of Brexit. Don't worry, I'm not going to go on about Brexit, but these are the facts. Uh, because London is a global city and it's a mega city. So if it were a country, it would be one of the largest countries in Europe. And we make an absolutely outsized contribution to the UK economy, to UK's life. We are an incredibly diverse city. So one in three Londoners is like me who's born overseas. Yeah, and perhaps others in the audience. Do you know how much we contribute to the UK economy? Almost a quarter. London's economy is double. It's the combined total of Scotland and Wales. And I'm giving you all of this information. And by the way, over the last 10 years, while this country has been in economic shock after economic shock, London, has given every year annually 12 billion pounds to the Exchequer, to the Treasury. And this is really important to bear in mind because what we're seeing right now is a divestment from London, with all of the attention being to other parts of the UK. London is the driving force of the economy, the cultural economy. It has been an absolute superpower, and yet we have a real political effort to move the attention away from London, and that matters for climate change. Because if we are to make London's very ambitious target of net zero by 2030 materialize, we're going to need financing, yes? And if we have different political parties in number 10 and in City Hall, that's not a very collegial relationship for central government saying, here you go, London, here's money for TfL. So this kind of relationship matters, money matters, London size matters, attention to London matters. And London has a really interesting history in terms of climate action. You'll be hearing, you know, many of you will be in the field perhaps also. But of course, um, when I came as an activist, I used to run the international campaigns for Friends of the Earth International. Um, when I came as a campaigner, the UK was so far ahead of 
the rest of the world, to understanding the dilemma and with the first Blair government actually really gripping the challenge of sustainability and climate change. In the early 2000s, and I was in the Blair government, um, we had, as a civil servant in DEFRA, um, we had very separate political um, uh, policies to do with sustainable development and climate change. So there was a cross-government policy on sustainable development, and of course we had the architecture of climate change legislation, which was to result in the 2008 Climate Change Act, the very first act of its type in the world. But London got a mayor in 2000. Do you remember when that happened? We've had three mayors. And that was really significant because with the mayoralty, with the, um, the GLA Act, came the first requirement of any city and still of any city, any local authority in the UK, statutory requirement to come up with a climate change strategy and action plan on mitigation. And so every successive mayor, whether it's been Ken or Boris or Sadiq, has had to come forward with really ever more ambitious climate change strategies. According to the statute, it's about mitigation. But already in 2002, London's leaders had the foresight to also focus on adaptation because London is uniquely vulnerable also. We, we're on a river, yeah? Our principal climate risks are flooding, drought, and overheating, yeah? So if you just look at the policy landscape, it has become ever more ambitious. And in the last few years, it's become even more turbocharged. And that has been since London declared a climate emergency in December 2018, and that changed everything. Because before we had a climate change cut target, which was similar to the government's, which was net zero by 2050. And when Sadiq announced net zero by 2030, everybody's head was spinning. It was like, how on earth do you actually deliver on something like that? Because it is so difficult for a city of this size and complexity to actually make sure that every home is climate resilient and powered by a heat pump air source or ground source, that renewable energy is widespread, that you've got public transport and active travel everywhere, that you have removed the fleet of diesel and petrol cars and vans and buses and replaced them with carbon neutral, with EVs, etc. But we, I don't have, unfortunately, enough time to share with you all of the amazing things that have gone right. But just a few highlights, yeah? So in order to make this astonishing transformative leap, from now in 2023, seven years down the road to 2030, what do we need to do in London? Yeah, so you've all heard about ULES. ULES is very tricky because it's really being challenged. But ULES is in the continuation of a series of transport policies that have sought to control congestion, to improve air quality. Every year, we pay more than five billion for the cost of congestion in this city. We don't need to we can reduce that to a fraction of what it is. So we have enlightened policy at the GLA level, but we also have boroughs. And this is really what is so complex about London. London is not a unitary city like Milan. Milan is one or two million people. They can, they can come up with any fantastic policy and they have a tiny city in which the mayor of Milan is able to run his writ. Why? Because he's able to finance, he's able to raise taxes, 
and he's got a very simple governance structure. London has an infernally complicated governance structure because we've got 33 entities, we've got 32 boroughs and the City of London. And do they like working together? What do you think the answer is? So we have a real incoherence. We've got an incredibly fragmented governance system where you have the mayor who has particular mandated duties as a mayor of London, but he doesn't have powers which are granted to him across the board by government. He also has very, very limited finance. And if you've been watching what's been happening with TfL, it's very difficult to have a public transport system in a mega city like this, which is free at the point of use, like you know they have in many cities around the world. Yeah, Because we are dependent on something like, I don't know, 60% of our income on actually raising that money from the public. Whereas if you go to Tokyo, the government subsidizes most of the Tokyo fleet. So it is very difficult because the mayor doesn't have powers and you've got these borough leaders who like to run their boroughs. So 32 of them. So to come to where the challenges are and why we have London Climate Action Week, which is now in its fifth year, is because the attempt is to do two things. The first is to recognize that London is unique because we have this incredible concentration of climate change focused institutions, professionals, communities who are working on these issues, the whole nine yards. And if you can actually create those climate clusters, we heard the language of clusters being used, and for the city to recognize the assets that it has in climate finance, in the universities that we have, in the world leading, whether it's the creative industries or the sports sector or other parts of the economy, we've got an enormous amount of economic, political, cultural assets to deploy every single one of them to make sure that they're playing their role in making that transition to net zero by the end of the decade and doing it in a just way. So that just transition piece is something that I'm going to be here next week at the launch of London Climate Action Week because the RSA is a hub, so you can come and learn all about London Climate Action Week. And we're going to be launching a report that's coming out from the London Sustainable Development Commission on how all of this can be um, enacted in a just way where no one is left behind in London. So I'll stop there. And sorry if I've gone on too long, Martin. You have Thank not you. Gone on too long. That was absolutely perfect. You took your cue from my subtle leaning forward. Um, a bit of conversation and questions uh, before we move on to Charlie. One, one question that obviously comes to my mind. We've got London and we've got the City of London. Um, to what extent do you feel that the city, i.e. the financial sector, is buying into this quite optimistically powerful vision of London's potential to attack climate change? Yeah, I think it just depends very much on the leadership. Uh, London has been the centre for carbon finance, as you'll know. We've got a number of world-leading organisations that help facilitate that carbon tracker, the carbon disclosure project, and of course the financiers in the city who do get it. Mm. There's money to be made in this mm. economic, the green transition. Mm. And so the city has been very much at the forefront. At the very first London Climate Action Week, which we organised in 2019, we had um, the Green Finance Institute, uh, effectively, you know, um, they had a whole day. And I'll give you an example of the level of interest that there was. You know where the Guildhall is? Yeah? Um, it is, so Guildhall is in the City of London, very important venue, and that's where the Green Finance Institute hosted a full day conference on climate finance. And if you were to go there and try and get a seat, you would have to join the queue at the very, very end of the street which runs parallel to it. So, yeah, um, when Sir Roger Gifford 
um, who, uh, who passed away last year, um, was um, the head of the, well, that part of the city, he held a number of positions, but he was a real visionary leading light who was championing the City of London Corporation, which is, by the way, it's one of the oldest in the world, Dick Whittington, mayor of London, so that's the, you know, that's the longevity. London has the mm. oldest city governance of any city in the world. So yeah, um, they can be behind it a bit more robustly, but yeah, they are very, they are very much with the program. Very good, very good. Um, anybody got any questions from the audience? We've got a couple more minutes of Melanie for you, if you like. I've got one more question then. Um, Chidi, this morning, who was our, our kickoff speaker this morning, at looking ahead to, to COP28, um, and, you know, I'd be fair enough to probably characterise you as cautiously optimistic. Chidi, would that be fair enough? Um, what's your feeling about the potential for progress within the COP mechanism as opposed to within business and within activists effectively outside it? Okay, so I think people should not get too hung up with COPs. Yeah, it's not about negotiation anymore, mm. right? We had um, the most important result, which was the Paris Agreement in 2015. And Paris has given us a very, very clear framework of, for action. So we know what we need to do. We know that we have to, by the end of this decade, we have to halve global emissions. And every country has come up with its nationally determined contributions with its NDCs. We know that this year there is going to be a global stock take. Now, those countries which are not that fully committed are being rather mealy-moused about how they're going to undertake the stock takes. But stock takes need to be undertaken at every level, at the London level, at the city level, at the regional level, mm. you know, overseen by Parliament. So that's where my role comes in, because my organisation, which was set up by Gore and Kerry, a long time ago, 30, more than 30 years ago, is there to ensure that there is parliamentary oversight and scrutiny about what governments sign up to at places like Paris. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a real brouhaha about uh, the UAE and about Sultan al-Jabbar, who is the COP president-designate. They couldn't even agree on an agenda over two weeks of Bond. Bond has finally finished. You know, everyone's like, thank God, you know, it didn't go on for an extra day. You know, I've lost the will to live. Um, but, you know, to be honest, the real action is in the cities and it's in the markets. And I'll leave you with one stat, yeah? So, solar power. We all know that over the course of the last 20, 30 years, renewable energy has absolutely wiped the floor with the fossil sector. Cheapest chips, yeah? Solar power now, according to the most recent stat that I saw, which was completely mind-blowing, it's that it took us 22 years to achieve solar capacity of one terawatt. You know what a terawatt is? That's a million, million watts coming back to your trillions of people watching. That is a trillion watts. 22 years for the first megawatt. The next megawatt we're going to achieve in three years. And the third megawatt in two years. To give you an idea of what a megawatt is, I'm Indian, yeah? India's entire national energy output, 1.4 billion people, is one terawatt. The United States' entire economy requires three terawatts to run. So we are not in Kansas anymore, folks. <laughs> and that's because the economy gets it. Yeah. So maybe policymakers don't completely are not on board, but the kids should be happy. 
because we have been doing our job. And that's why I wanted to come here and share this with you. Because mm -hmm. I've been in this for 30 plus years and I've got three kids and none of them suffer from climate anxiety. Yeah? Excellent. And my husband has been doing the same stuff since pre-Kyoto. So my kids don't even ask a question about climate change. They've got other things to do and I'm happy with that. Melanie, thank you very much. That was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.